Hello, and welcome to another podcast from the Rheumatology and Arthritis Learning Network. I'm your moderator, Rebecca Mashal. Today, Dr. Jeffrey Sparks of Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School and Dr. Zachary Wallace from Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School will discuss their research as part of the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance into how baseline use of DMARDs, including TNF inhibitors, rituximab, corticosteroids, and JAK inhibitors, affected outcomes among patients with rheumatoid arthritis who contracted COVID-19. Hello, my name is Jeffrey Sparks. I'm a rheumatologist and clinical researcher at Brigham Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm Zach Wallace. I'm also a rheumatologist and a clinical researcher at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. Great, and we are uh, co-first authors on a uh, presentation at ULAR, which was also recently accepted at Annals of Rheumatic Diseases, investigating baseline use of biologic and targeted synthetic DMARDs in rheumatoid arthritis for COVID severity. So we're very pleased to discuss these results together. Jeff, you know, we've been working on this for so long. I think we uh, started thinking about this a while ago, just recognizing as more and more data was coming out about the impact of COVID-19 on our patients, we really wanted to try and get at the question of what was the impact of some of these biologic and targeted synthetic DMARDs that we so often use in rheumatology and were also being repurposed um, to treat COVID, what their impact was on um, patients who, who got COVID-19. I don't know what you think, but I, I think our, our, our approaches, our methodologic approaches really tried to address some of the potential limitations that some of the prior studies had had. Yeah, I, I, just to add to that, I think this was something really early on into the Global Rheumatology Alliance, the GRA, that we were wanting to do. And we kind of hoped there weren't enough cases actually to ever do the analysis, but unfortunately it, it did end up to that point. I think we started analyzing this probably January, but uh, yeah, maybe I can just summarize sort of the punchline and then we can kind of delve into some of the details. You know, really we wanted to only analyze rheumatoid arthritis, only analyze patients who are on advanced therapies to try to minimize the possible impact of uh, confounding by indication also so that patients were in a similar disease state. So those were really exposure variables are these medications that you know we use in our patients in particular for rheumatoid arthritis and to see whether this changed the trajectory of the COVID-19 disease course. Um, and what we found is that compared to the most common medication used, TNF inhibitors, uh, rituximab and JAK inhibitors were associated with poor outcomes. And then in the, in, the, in the middle, I guess you could say, would be the interleukin-6 inhibitors and abatacept, which didn't seem to have uh, a consistent association with uh, poor COVID-19 outcomes compared to TNF inhibitors. Hopefully that's an accurate summation, Zach. I think that's that's definitely a really great summary of, of the work we did. And I think we were lucky to be able to be a part of the rheumatology community, which really came together early on in the pandemic to start the Global Rheumatology Alliance, which um, physicians from around the world have contributed cases. And without, I think, all this participation, we really wouldn't have been able to do this or any of the other studies that the GRA has been able to put together. So so I think we should also just put a shout out there to all the people who participated and contributed cases and, and thank you for, for helping us do these studies. One thing that I that I think you and I get asked often is what are the implications of this study and, and what do we take from it, especially given the much higher odds associated with worse outcomes among the rituximab treated patients and also the somewhat 
surprising finding among patients who use JAK inhibitors, given just what mm-hmm. we know about the use of baricitinib in COVID. I don't know what what do you what do you think about that? Well, maybe I'll take the rituximab part of that, and I'll let you chime in on the JAK inhibitor side. Um, Well, I think you would agree, Zach, that we were probably expecting the rituximab users to have a worse course. I think actually really strong association was a bit surprising. I mean, it's really impressive how poorly these patients did. And I'll mention another thing that comes to mind is, are these just different patients? And certainly they could be. This is an observational study, but we tried our very hardest to try to adjust away things. And, you know, we did sensitivity analyses where we eliminated patients who had ILD or cancer and, you know, adjusted for comorbidities. And we still, we really saw this association with rituximab users. So to me, I feel like the association is probably, you know, obviously there's other studies that have shown it as well, but to me, it it has a lot of face validity, has a lot of biologic plausibility. And to me, it's a call to action for rituximab users. Unfortunately, there's not an easy solution because the vaccines don't seem to be working as well for those patients. Certainly, anecdotally, I've seen patients even fully vaccinated with rituximab who have had poor outcomes, even deaths. As far as what to do, I'm not exactly sure, but I I feel like the finding, um, a lot of uh, evidence based behind it, and it really is a call to action, not just for RA patients, but our other patients on rituximab for other indications, you know, things like monoclonal antibodies, whether these patients should be um, social distancing, wearing masks longer, and obviously things like booster vaccines or delaying their infusions. So I I feel like this is a real call to action about what to do for this finding for rituximab. I couldn't agree more. And I I think that, uh, I don't know, this personally, I I tend to use a lot of rituximab in my clinical practice because of the patient population that that I see. And I, you know, as we've learned more about the outcomes of these patients during the pandemic, I've become increasingly a little more conservative about my use of rituximab, trying to space dosing intervals out or, or hold on initiation if I can, just because give these people time to get their vaccine, have a great response, hopefully have a good response to the vaccine and then start them on treatment. Or just trying to wait for you know, the rates of, of COVID to go down enough that I feel pretty comfortable just in the community giving them rituximab. And, you know, I think we're lucky to live in an area where rates are dropping. And so hopefully it's becoming less of an issue, but that's not true for obviously other parts of the world where, where it's still a huge problem. I think in terms of the JAK inhibitor observation, as I mentioned, I, I think we were both a little surprised about that. There, there's trial data showing that baricitinib may improve outcomes in patients who have um, COVID-19 and are started on baricitinib to to treat the sort of hyperinflammatory response that we know leads to a lot of substantial morbidity and mortality in COVID. And so I think this raises the question of whether or not this is also a timing question. And and the timing of the exposure obviously was very different in our study. These are patients who had been using JAK inhibitors probably for you know many months, if not years, um, before they were infected with COVID-19. And and the effects of JAK inhibitors on the immune response um, and, and the effect that has on, on the host's ability to get good control of the infection immediately may be responsible for some of the associations that we, that we observed. And maybe when you use baricitinib or another JAK inhibitor to treat the hyperinflammatory response, you're just at a different phase of the disease. So you're seeing benefits rather than some of the potential harms. But I think one of the things that we talk about or, or that we that you and I have talked about is that we bunched the JAK inhibitors together as a class. And we know that uh, they have different specific JAK targets. And so there may be differences across the JAK inhibitors. And I think 
that is a future study that needs to be done to understand whether this is true for um, the different jack uh, inhibitors or, or or is true across the class. Yeah, I would agree. I think ours is um, really the first to really look at this question, honestly. So I don't think it's necessarily in conflict with other data besides the trial data, but I, I definitely think this is something that needs to be replicated and looking at particular jacks to see if those are different. And I think the other thing that we've been trying to rationalize the finding is that it may be a question of when when this is um, being used. You know, it might be that getting infected while you're on a JAK inhibitor causes the trajectory of illness to be worse, but maybe you know right when the hyperinflammatory phase happens and when there's oxygen requirement, that might be actually a you know the, the moment clinically to use a JAK inhibitor. So similar to the steroid associations and the trial data with dexamethasone, um, it seems like patients with glucocorticoids do worse if they're using it at baseline, but obviously it's the really cornerstone of treatment for patients who are doing poorly with COVID-19. So that does seem to be a corollary there. Definitely. And, and I think we focused on the biologics as, a, as our class of, of interest here and our exposures, but I think we also, folks are probably interested in looking at, you know, other DMARDs um, that we didn't necessarily include and also you know, examining this question, other populations like patients with different types of vasculitis or patients with lupus. And, you know, I think we can expect to see more data like this coming out in some of those um, disease subgroups as well, because obviously these are questions that are just so relevant to all of our um, patients with a variety of diseases. You know, I do think our observations are, are relevant to those other populations at this time. You know, in the absence of specific data, I think what we observed in the RA patients is probably what you might see also in patients with ankyvasculitis who are getting rituximab or lupus and other conditions. I wonder if you wanted to comment on the comparator group, TNF inhibitors. Is it really that these drugs are bad or could it be that TNF inhibitors actually have maybe a beneficial effect? Just curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I, I think this is certainly, um, this is a, a limitation of our study, right? Like our reference our reference group here is, is people who use TNF inhibitors, and we don't know what their outcomes are compared to just the general population. And, and maybe TNF inhibitor use is beneficial. And so what we're really seeing is while the rituximab users or the JAK inhibitor users do worse than the TNF inhibitors, maybe compared to like the general population, they're not that far off. I, I don't think that's probably the case. I think we don't necessarily expect that, but I think it's something that we need to explore further. And something that we are working on now is, is really trying to start to get at this question of across these different groups of drug users, what is their, what's their risk compared to the, the general population? But I, I think one of the issues we've run into is just recognizing that these patients are using these medications for a reason because they are sick, because they have these other diseases and trying to tease out um, the effect of the drug versus their condition compared to the general population is a little, a little trickier, but certainly something we need to continue to work on. Yeah, I'll mention that the interleukin-6 inhibitors, the point, I mean, it was not associated, but the point estimate was actually a bit under one for that group. And obviously there's been intense interest about repurposing that those, that class of medications for COVID treatment. And it's been a little, um, I know the recovery I think was positive, but there's been trials both positive and negative for interleukin-6 inhibitors. So it's just really interesting about how our drugs could be repurposed and how some of them might impart a favorable course. And certainly some of them might have um, an unfavorable course. And we haven't talked about apatacept either. So. Well, I agree with you. The IL-6 um, observation is certainly interesting. And I think it's something we tried to squeeze into the conclusion, but we had so much to discuss, we couldn't really uh, get it all in there. But 
I think it's an important observation given what we know about, you know, some of the, some of the trials at least looking at um, IL-6 inhibition for COVID. But in terms of abatacept, yeah, I mean, I, I think the group of patients that get abatacept for RA are are somewhat unique. And I think in our approach, we really tried to address some of these differences in their um, demographics and some of their disease-specific features. And across most of the analyses, we didn't see an association. There was one, our propensity score matched analysis, where we did see a little bit of an association between abatacept and, and poor outcomes. And I think you know, that's an important observation. It's, we have to recognize that, that that was a activity analysis. It wasn't our primary analysis. We have to take that with a grain of salt. With propensity score matching, we do lose a number of people in terms of our sample size. And so I think that's something that deserves further study and, and needs to be looked at in other cohorts to see if that association is true or not. The other analyses looking at Avitasib didn't really suggest that that strong of association, um, and it certainly wasn't significant. So I think for now, I'm, I'm less worried about those patients, certainly compared to my rituximab patients and maybe my JAK inhibitor patients. I don't know, Jeff, what do you think our like next step should be? I, we have so many. What do you think is our, our first one? <laughs> you know, I think one thing that we haven't talked a lot about, Zach, is I think most of this was done in the pre-vaccine era. You kind of wonder whether this would hold up in, in a vaccinated population. I'm, I'm curious what you think about how this sort of applies, at least in the U.S., where there's a lot more vaccinations. I, you know, I think that the that what we saw in our in the rituximab treated patients is is a reflection probably of what we can what we're going to see in our rituximab treated patients who get vaccinated. I, I just I'm not optimistic that they're having a really sufficient response to the vaccine that's going to protect them. Um, and I and I think that's something that hopefully we'll have more data on soon. You know, obviously a number of our colleagues have been publishing some studies demonstrating and suggesting that rituximab users don't have a great vaccine response. But I think we also need to complement some of those, some of that translational work with clinical outcomes and, and looking at what happens to these people when they are infected. So I, I totally agree. I, I think that's a really important next step, probably the most important one and one that I know patients ask me about in each and every clinic I have, um, you know, what, what is the efficacy of the vaccine in, in my case? It will be interesting once we have more data to see if there's in these patients, are there alternative approaches to vaccine strategies, whether it's booster shots or whether, you know, we just won't necessarily be able to rely on vaccines. And maybe we need to think about um, passive immunity and monoclonal antibodies and things like that um, to protect these patients. But I, I think it's a real priority given what we observed with they're really poor outcomes if they do get COVID and they're unvaccinated. I think looking to see who's getting infected, if they're getting infected and their outcomes after vaccination, I think is going to shed a lot of light to this. I know there are some people hope, hoping that the T-cell response is going to you know, make up for you know, antibody levels. And I understand it's really hard to measure the T-cells and it's a lot easier to measure the antibodies, but certainly that's not the full picture. So I think that will be an important question for our B-cell depleted patients who seem to have very or antibody levels. And again, I think, as you know, Zach, we have some anecdotal evidence, but uh, we need to really do a rigorous analysis looking at people who got COVID after vaccination and try to see if there's a signal there to, to try to understand what put people at risk for that. So uh, there's still more to do, unfortunately, in COVID. <laughs> but I, I think that to your point about the rituximab-treated patients and, and their outcomes, I think the other, the other big knowledge gap that we have is there are patients who've been on rituximab for years and have been continuously B-cell depleted for, you know, four or five years in treatment of ankyl vasculitis or other conditions. And 
you know, we don't know if, if that person is the same as the one who's gotten, let's say, one rituximab infusion in the last year, and that's the only infusion they've ever received. You know, I don't know how to weigh or how to assess the, the individual risk of a rituximab user based on their, their rituximab history, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so hopefully, hopefully we get more data on this because it is, it is obviously such a, an important area. Well, we'll have to help generate that data, Zach. If you're up for it. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll stay tuned. I think Jeff and I have some more data coming your way. Um, well, we could continue talking forever, probably, Zach. We probably will on other Zooms, but uh, maybe we'll. Yeah, yeah, we'll on. just hop on, hop on our <laughs> other Zoom after this. No, this is great, though, Jeff. I always enjoy talking to you about these issues. Uh, it's been a great partnership, and hopefully we'll continue. Yeah, definitely. All right. Thanks for your attention.